Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Hannah Abrams, and I'm joined by my friends and co-hosts, Tony Brew and Avi Cooper. How are you guys doing? Not too bad. How are you doing, Avi? Doing great. It's great to see you. Yeah. Have you guys come across anything interesting to share with our, uh, with our audience this week? So, Avi, I know you have a child, and uh, I know, Hannah, uh, as an intern, you're looking for easy, uh, easily consumed <laughs> food products. Um, so we, we've gotten into the habit in our home of making a three-ingredient cookie, and those three ingredients are overly ripened bananas, uh, oats, uncooked oats, and peanut butter. And I'll tell you, it is, for, for just those ingredients, obviously very simple and remarkably delicious. Um, I would be lying if I said that the, a fourth ingredient of chocolate chips doesn't occasionally make its way in there as well. That sounds delicious. It also makes me happy that food has now come up on the podcast yet again with delicious recipes made by Tony and his family. Yeah, we don't, we don't add anchovies and soy sauce, uh, even if we were looking for the glutamates. <laughs> Why is peanut butter the evolutionarily perfect food? <laughs> exactly. Up next on the podcast. Yeah. Okay, well, up next on the podcast, we are going to delve in to a particularly interesting question, I think, which is why does cryptococcal meningitis lead to such high increases in intracranial pressure? So Avi, how did this come up for you? So it actually came up because there was an emergent LP that I was doing in the ICU, and it was the setting of known cryptococcal meningitis. And the opening pressure was like really high, like at the top of the column, like 50 to 60 centimeters of water. But the CSF, it came out, the cerebral spinal fluid came out crystal clear. And uh, this is, you know, this is really in kind of contradistinction for me to the LPs I've done in bacterial meningitis when the opening pressure is elevated, but the CSF comes out, it looks like pus or it's really cloudy. And I guess it kind of made intuitive sense to me that the inflamed CSF of bacterial meningitis would have high pressures. But I kind of realized in that moment that I didn't really know why cryptococcus would elevate the CSF pressure like this without causing a lot of inflammation and having this really kind of clear CSF. Yeah. And I, I can distinctly remember learning about this connection that cryptococcal meningitis leads to uh, an increased intracranial pressure pretty early on during residency. Uh, I never thought to ask the question. I just thought, Oh, how, how interesting. Um, but is that connection, like the fact that I, I learned that connection early, is that is that a pretty consistent finding with cryptococcus? Is it like universal? Do you have a sense for, you know, if this is a common thing? Yeah. So just to make sure kind of we're all on the same page in terms of the definitions of what we're talking about, elevated CSF pressure is technically greater than 20 centimeters of water. And in terms of your question, Tony, you know, one case series that I saw reported that up to 70% of patients with HIV and cryptococcal meningitis have high CSF pressures. And it seems like patients with HIV or other kind of immunosuppressed states are in particular are predisposed to higher CSF pressures from cryptococcus as opposed to immunocompetent patients if they were to get cryptococcal meningitis. You, you may not know this, Avi, but do you have a sense for how high, how often like just garden variety bacterial meningitis leads to elevated pressures? I, don't, I have no idea. I don't. I think it's often elevated. I think it's okay. like a pretty common finding, um, but I don't have numbers off the top of my head. Okay. Yeah. I'm just picturing like fellowship or residency, Avi, like <laughs> sitting there in the middle of the night doing this emergent LP and watching the, the pressure rise through the manometer <laughs> and thinking, why is it so clear? Like, what what is going on? Um, doctor, the gears doctor. were turning very, very, very slowly. <laughs> 
Yeah, it reminds me of a similarly, mildly, extremely stressful uh, moment from earlier in my intern year, <laughs> in which uh, we we stab page neurosurgery. Um, but so just briefly for all of us, in order to review the kind of flow of CSF before we get started, let's kind of go through how CSF gets produced and then flows through the skull. So first it is produced in the choroid plexus, then CSF flows outward, basically up and through the ventricular system, and then drains into the subarachnoid space. In those subarachnoid space are these granules or these arachnoid granulations that sit next to the venous sinuses, through which the CSF sits and then gets resorbed like past a gradient into the blood. That's about all I remember from that, from anatomy. It's You know, that's better than I could do because I don't even know that I can recall having, ever having heard the term arachnoid granulations. I, I mean, I've heard of arachnoid uh, sinus, sinus? Uh, but I haven't heard of arachnoid granulations. So Avi, can you tell us a little bit more about like what's happening at the cellular level with the, these granulations? Yeah, I, I was in the same boat that I had not really heard of these structures before and what they did. It was kind of just, oh, the CSF kind of goes back to the blood, and that's just how it works. <laughs> how uh, wonderful. But, yeah, exactly. It just works so well. Um, so they're actually, the arachnoid granulations are actually composed of endothelial cells, and they form part of the blood-brain barrier um, that we hear so much about. And the CSF returns to the blood across this barrier by way of transport in large intracellular vacuoles and smaller vesicles. They basically get ferried across these endothelial cells in the arachnoid granulations in the vacuoles and the vesicles, which are almost like little boats that transport the CSF back to the blood, which I thought was really just fascinating, just learning about how that actually works, which I didn't know. Right. Okay. So going back a second, Avi is sitting here doing this emergent LP wondering why it's clear, um, and wondering why, watching the pressure rise. So why is the pressure high normally in bacterial meningitis, and is it the same as why the, the pressure is high in cryptococcal meningitis? Yeah, you know, it seems like there's a paradox with cryptococcus. Like you said, you know, the CSF, even when you, it comes out, it can come out clear, and when you look at the profile, it's often quite bland and non-inflammatory. But the CSF pressures can get really high, and that just really didn't make sense to me at all. And so, in terms of you know why why it can do this, you know, one interesting observation that I saw was from a study not too long ago, actually, just in 2009, that spinal opening pressures in cryptococcal meningitis actually correlated with fungal burden. Um, of the organisms themselves in the CSF. The uh, higher the fungal burden, the higher the opening pressure they found. And so this suggests that there's something about the cryptococcus organism itself, which is elevating the intracranial pressure. Got it. So there's, so uh, almost opposed to bacterial meningitis in which you're inflaming the arachnoid granulations and then they get scarred and that's why they don't, like the CSF doesn't cross? Yes, exactly. So, so what is it about cryptococcus? Yeah, I mean, are there the, obviously cryptococcus isn't the only um, fungal infection that can lead to meningitis. Is there something unique about cryptococcus compared to, say, something like histo? Yeah, so histoplasmosis, you know, they don't cause um, the same level of intracranial pressure like cryptococcus does, which is kind of surprising because I kind of think of them as potentially similar organisms, I guess, but um, it's different. And you know, it seems to be unique to cryptococcus. And so to understand why, we kind of need to look under the microscope at the actual histology of the arachnoid granulations during cryptococcal infection. 
And you know, the arachnid granulations are actually infiltrated by and then get filled with the cryptococcus, in particular the vesicles and vacuoles that transport that CSF out of the CNS and back to the blood. They just get kind of stuffed full of cryptococcus when you look under the microscope. And for, uh, again, going back to bacterial meningitis, is it that in that condition, it's like the white blood cells that are doing a similar clogging? Or, or, do, or again, do, do we not know what's happening there? I think that's more inflammatory damage to the structure okay. itself. Okay. But here it's, it's more like a clog drain almost. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I kind of love this because I was looking at like why the name cryptococcus and it means hidden spheres. And so I love this idea that there are these vacuoles that are supposed, these tiny spheres that are supposed to be going across the arachnoid granulations, um, ferrying essentially CNA, CSF normally. And that the C, uh, that the cryptococcus is hiding inside of these spheres and clogging them up. And so that's how I've remembered it since um, I learned about this from you telling us about it. And I just, I love this as like this hidden meaning to the name and like way to remember this. It's so cool. Okay. So what is it about cryptococcus? Why, like, why doesn't histo do this? Yeah. So we've kind of been building up to like what actually about this, this um, organism is so unique. And so one differentiating factor of cryptococcus is that it's a really large fungus. Um, apparently it's three times as large as candida and seven times as large as histoplasmosis. And what makes it so large is it has a distinctive polysaccharide capsule. And this is actually the antigen that we test for when we order a cryptococcal antigen assay from like bodily fluids, which is something that I actually didn't realize. But this is you're testing for this polysaccharide capsule. And that capsule makes it very makes it a large fungus. And that it also apparently probably contributes to its its virulence as well. So hmm. is it the actual capsule itself that's the problem or the size of the organism itself like it, it, I know they're 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 interrelated concepts but which really is the the bigger issue here Yeah I guess not surprisingly it's probably both it seems like so you know one point to note is that different variants of um capsule can have different qualities of of this polysaccharide antigen and um and the two main types that I came across were mucoid and smooth. And there was a study that was in it was done in rats that looked at the impact of smooth versus mucoid cryptococcal antigens and capsules on intracranial pressure. And again, take this with a hefty helping of uh, table salt because it was done in rats. But mucoid antigen was associated with higher intracranial pressures than smooth. So the authors theorize that the higher viscosity of the mucoid variants may have more effectively blocked CSF transport through the arachnoid granulations as compared to the smooth variant. But it also makes sense that, that the large size would be relevant as well. And there was an interesting study from the Journal of Infectious Diseases from 2014 that looked at the correlation between capsule size and intracranial pressure, specifically in patients with HIV who had cryptococcal meningitis. And so they found that the patients who had the largest capsule size also had the highest intracranial pressures. So either way you look at it, whether it's the characteristics of the capsule or its size, it seems to all come back to the capsule. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder if like other really large fungi like paracoxy also cause the same thing or if because they're not super like mucoid encapsulated, they don't cause the same sort of a clog. Yeah, I know. It's a really good question. I don't, I don't know that fungus's size compared to, 
<laughs> which is uh, it's i was surprised by how big cryptococcus is in terms of like its comparison to other like seven times greater than histo like yeah. that's huge yeah no kidding <laughs> but as i think back Come to on, when i've histo. seen it in Drink conference some muscle milk. you know and you've like you've seen the slide with the staining i i i, I don't know maybe i have a, a faulty memory but I, I think i was like oh well, i guess that's pretty big and I think it's all the capsule. Like, I think the actual yeah. cellular components compared to Histo are about the same, but the capsule just makes it kind of enormous. Okay, so going back a second, you mentioned HIV predisposes to higher CSF pressure from cryptococcus than other patients. It, it, what's the story there? Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting association, and it actually ties in kind of well with the pathophysiology and mechanisms that we've been discussing. So patients with HIV tend to have higher CSF fungal burdens, probably because they don't mount a robust immune response, and that allows the fungus to, to propagate and survive. And as we've learned, you know, more organisms in the CSF means more antigen, more antigen means more obstruction and disruption of the arachnoid granulations, which leads to impaired CSF drainage back to the blood and higher pressures. So this is actually the, the exact opposite of what occurs in bacterial meningitis, like you guys had talked about, where you get this exuberant kind of inflammatory response that damages the arachnid granulations and disrupts CSF drainage that way. This is purely a result of how many organisms and their antigens and capsule, you know, that are, are there that leads to this problem. Yeah, and I think this is a somewhat similar story to what we see with PJP, right, where patients who have HIV disease and PJB often have... Uh, a higher uh, burden of the organism, but maybe a less exuberant inflammatory response. And then patients who have PJP secondary to, say, chronic steroid use have a lower burden of organisms, but, but a much higher inflammatory response. Um, so I, I, do, do you th see similar similarities, Avi? Yeah, I think that's a really great comparison um, to kind of just the, the, the pathophysiology of how some of these, these entities can present. And it really does demonstrate how, you know, not every manifestation of an infection is from the infection and not every manifestation of, of an infection is the immune response to that infection. It kind of depends on the organism and depends on the host. It's, it's a little bit of both. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really great point. I think what, what I found really interesting kind of specifically about cryptococcus was how mechanical this explanation was. Yes. Um, you know, it's a really, it's like, it's just physically blocking the, uh, the other you know, transport of the CSF. So, yeah. But I, it, it, it's nice that in, uh, an elegant explanation, like a big glob blocking a hole kind of works. <laughs> it's very elegant. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Just we, another clog in the machine. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we've, you've touched on a lot already. Um, is there anything else that you, um, learned when you were researching this topic or, um, you know, even after you posted as a tutorial uh, a few months back? So Cryptococcus neoformans is the species that we see clinically, typically, most commonly. But um, I, you know, and as you said, Tony, I originally published this as a tutorial in June of 2020. And a co-resident of mine, um, the brilliant Javier Villafuerte, mentioned another pathogenic Cryptococcus species that is worth knowing about. And he brought up Cryptococcus gati. And so this organism still has a capsule. It behaves like neoformans. But it's endemic in the Americas, and it's really more common and more more common in immunocompetent hosts. It also kind of tends to cause a fungal pneumonia more commonly than uh, neoformans does, and apparently it can be contracted from smoking eucalyptus leaves as like one of the main risk factors, especially in patients who have like otherwise or, or underlying lung disease. And so, I think the take home of there is don't. Don't do that. Don't smoke leptus leaves <laughs> if you didn't oh, already maybe know to not do that because <laughs> you might get cryptococcus. 
Or at least, you know, tell your doctor about it when you then come to the hospital with a pneumonia. Exactly, exactly. Otherwise, I think it would be challenging to know to send the antigen, yeah. yeah you might want to get your India ink. Okay, so Avi, can you give us some take-homes? Yeah, sure. So cryptococcal meningitis, you know, it often increases intracranial pressure. This likely results from the fungus's polysaccharide capsule that both contributes to its large size and it blocks transport of CSF through the arachnoid granulations. And this occurs more commonly in immunocompromised patients such as those with HIV because they don't mount the same level of immune response and they have higher fungal burdens, which leads to more antigen in the CSF. This is in contrast to bacterial meningitis, where intracranial pressure rises because of the immune and inflammatory response, which damages the arachnoid granulations and blocks CSF drainage that way in a totally different way than cryptococcus. So... That's kind of what I learned learning about this from this, that emergent LP in did the that, ICU. So did, uh, did whomever was the operator get uh, a bottle of champagne? Because it sounds like it was a pretty uh, uh, clear CSF when you did the, the LP. Yeah, uh, no, there was no no champagne exchanged. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you guys are too busy treating the patient. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, I was raising my blood pressure as I think about this scenario. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, watching just the the fluid go higher and higher and higher. Well, Avi, that was absolutely fantastic. Um, uh, I I learned a, a ton. Uh, I had learned a ton when I reviewed the tutorial, and um, it was really cool reviewing this again. So that wraps up this episode of The Curious Clinicians. Um, thanks again for joining us. And if you have an interesting tutorial or online meta teaching point you think would be fun for us to feature on the show, just tag us on Twitter. Uh, I've been Tony Brew. I'm Avi Cooper. And I'm Hannah Abrams. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at, at CuriousClinPod. You can also join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have the show notes for each episode delivered directly to your inbox. We are delighted to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to this episode, which you've already done. For more information, please visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash CuriousClinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians. Bye. See ya. <laughs>